available on digital media, iTunes podcast, smartphone apps, and from the online website. This is Outlook, the talking newspaper for Coventry. Hello, welcome to Outlook. I'm Sheila Allen, and this edition is being recorded on Wednesday, the 22nd of February, 2023. And coming up in the next 90 minutes or so, we have got Margaret visiting yet another interesting building in the city. We've got the second parts of two pieces that start last week about Zoom Radio and Jessica Shepherdess. We've got an interesting piece about diamond cutting, a poem read by Margaret, and a short story read by Cynthia Townsend, plus, of course, Sarah with Sport and your post bag with Dave. But we start, as usual, with a review of the past week's local news with myself and Elaine. Outlook News. A new report shows a three-year programme that has been pioneered in cities, including Coventry, has made a real difference in helping young people leaving care to build happy and successful lives. The programme has demonstrated the value of local authorities engaging with young people to develop creative and innovative solutions for local care leavers. Led by leading children's rights organisation Quorum Voice, the New Belongings Project has seen Coventry and seven other local authorities work with care leavers to understand their views and experiences and find new ways of making their lives better through listening to them about what is important to them and what they need. That has helped develop a range of local improvements in areas such as education and employment, emotional health and well-being, leaving care support services and accommodation. Despite the difficulties of working during COVID-19, Coventry heard from over 400 of its city's care leavers in two surveys about how life was going. The local authority and its partners then worked alongside young people to make improvements. Some of the changes the young people are really proud of are how Coventry has helped them celebrate their successes and make them feel safe in their homes. In Coventry, work has included the House Project that supports young people as they build confidence and gain independence while living in their own home and learning about day-to-day tasks such as cooking, money and bills, personal safety and finding out how to shop smartly. They also help to build links with local employers and training providers to help them find work and they attend conferences, hear from guest speakers and raise money for the homeless. Coventry Blitz survivor Mary Locke, believed to be the only woman appointed as a civil defence fireguard instructor in the city during the Second World War, celebrated her extraordinary life of service as she turned 100 last week. And to mark the marvellous milestone, Mary's family organised a whole load of special treats for her, including an invitation by Earl Spencer to meet him at Althorpe. On Monday, the curate for St Mark's Church, Glen Loud, visited her and during the meeting, Mary let him know she was still as keen as ever to help others. Members of the Friends of the Hospital of St Cross visited Mary as she is their oldest serving member. 
the centenarian also received a personalised letter from the Bishop of Coventry, Christopher Coxworth, which was hand-delivered and read by Reverend Tim Cockle, who also blessed Mary and thanked her for a life of service. She also received a card from King Charles III and Queen Consort, and another from Princess Alexandra, wishing her well. Mary was only 17 years old when her family home in Three Spires Avenue, Camden, was destroyed in the relentless German bombing raids of November 14, 1940. Her family survived the blast, but 10 of their friends and neighbours in the street perished during the Blitz, and her mum died shortly after due to stress. Meaning Mary and her two younger sisters were left homeless and taken in by an aunt in Kersley. Mary went up to take her civil defence role and then after the war, she and her late husband Clive, a teacher, settled in rugby. Mary ran two war shops and the pair had two children, Michael and Jennifer. And she now has many grandchildren and great-grandchildren. Michael said she's in very good health, sharp, good-humoured, engaged with life and has a lot of wisdom. It's just lovely she seems to have the energy to receive and enjoy all these wonderful honours she has been gifted with. It's wonderful she's in such good health and getting the celebration she deserves and it's amazing she still has a passion and purpose in life to help others. A sharp-eyed Coventry resident helped the council track down and find a fly-tipper who was seen dumping rubbish in an alleyway between Bray's Lane and Harefield Road and they quickly alerted the council. Officers were then able to get to the site and scoured the fly tip for evidence to find details of the culprit. Among the household rubbish, officers found the name and address of a person in Coventry. They carried out council tax checks to ensure that the person still lived at the address and a fly tipping allegation letter was sent out. When no reply was received, officers re visited the home and sent a further notice and finally, the person made contact. When presented with the evidence, they admitted what they had done. They were issued with a fixed penalty notice for fly-tipping and ordered to pay £200 or be taken to court. Councillor Abdul Salam Khan, Deputy Leader of Coventry City Council and Cabinet Member responsible for prosecution and enforcement, said the case showed the value of residents working with the council to keep the city clean for everyone. He said, fly-tipping is a very serious offence. It is a blight on neighbourhoods and affects everyone who lives in that area. The council works very hard to track down and charge offenders, but we need the support of residents in telling us when and where these offences take place. If we can get to the scene quickly and find any evidence before it is lost or destroyed by the weather, then we can take action and make sure those people responsible pay. If we work together as one Coventry, we can keep our city clean and that will help everyone to take more pride in their neighbourhoods and build stronger communities and a stronger city. A corner shop, car wash and takeaway in a Coventry com community are set to be demolished to make way for a new care home. Under the proposals, the three current buildings on Hollyhead Road and Minster Road would be bulldozed. In their place would be a 26-bedroom residential care home in what would be a predominantly three-storey building. It would also boast a roof garden facing onto Minster Road. 
It is not the first planning application submitted for the site, as there have been historic pl planning applications, including for one for a care home with 27 rooms, which was withdrawn. Prior to this, plans were submitted for a three-storey building comprising an element of retail on the ground floor and student accommodation. This new application is solely for a care home, but there have been some objections raised by those who live locally. Among the concerns are overdevelopment, brutal design, increased traffic, increased parking pressure, no cycle or mobility scooter storage, increased crime and the loss of amenity at corner shop. Some are also concerned about the impact of the new facility as it is in the Norse Mill Conservation Area. However, planners at Coventry City Council are recommending that the proposal be given the go-ahead. In a report, they said that the proposal has been designed to help boost the heritage in the area. The report to planning committee members explains, the proposed development provides an opportunity to create a well-designed larger building which would enhance the street scene and wider setting of the conservation area. It is considered the proposal would result in a positive impact upon the significance of this heritage asset. A kind-hearted Coventry pupil is being celebrated by his peers and teachers after spearheading a school fundraiser for the Turkey-Syria earthquake appeal. Mohamed Elterwill, a Year 6 pupil at Charter Academy in Canley, was so moved by the devastation in the Middle East, he took it upon himself to organise a non-uniform day. The initiative has already raised in excess of £530 for the appeal, which is distributing aid to the families affected by one of the greatest natural disasters in recent years. Head teacher Louise Stewart said, It's such a lovely gesture. We have leadership sessions and a parliament at school. Mohammed had been so touched by the stories in the news that he took his idea to the parliament's events team and it has gone from there. They have literally done everything. They have raised awareness of the fundraising among parents and sorted out all of the organisation and communication. It very much fits in with our Trust's vision of aspiration for all. It's great that the students have shown these leadership skills in coordinating the fundraising. We work really hard on raising the profile of the school and celebrating positivity, and this definitely ties in with that. Almost all of the school's 354 students were sponsored in some way to ditch their uniforms on February the 16th. Hundreds of pounds have been raised for the appeal by people connected to a school in one of the city's less affluent areas. We are in quite a deprived area of the city, the head added, so for our school to raise such an amount is amazing. The city of Coventry has not been slow in coming forward to help those affected by the dreadful earthquake which has claimed the lives of more than 40,000 people and injured over 100,000 since it struck in the early hours of February the 6th. Working with Samara's aid in Syria, Coventry charity Feed the Hungry is appealing for donations including food, hygiene products, blankets, camping equipment and warm clothing which it hopes to send in the first week of March. 
A Coventry councillor says he doesn't want people to lose sight of the City of Culture's positive impact amid concerns over the fate of the upcoming legacy projects. Councillor David Welsh, Coventry Council's Cabinet Member for Arts and Culture, said he had seen a change in people as a result of the scheme and stressed it had brought benefits to the city. Earlier this month, the BBC reported that the City of Culture Trust, which led the year-long event and is overseeing planned legacy projects, is in financial difficulty. I don't want this to be something that takes us back to before the City of Culture started, Councillor Welsh told the local democracy reporting service following the news. I don't want it to be people looking at the ground and losing sight of the benefits. I think people are looking up, looking for the opportunities and we are taking them. Organisations are stepping up to that challenge. I have lived in Coventry all my life. I was born in Coventry. I have seen a change in people. People used to talk about being sent to Coventry as a negative thing. The City of Culture shook that. It got people aware of what is going on in the city. We have grown so much as a city, I don't want us to lose that. New hotels, nationally significant exhibitions and public realm improvements are all examples of how the title has helped, he said. Fifteen historic buildings were restored and invested in during this time, a magnificent achievement. Councillor Welsh also referred to an independent report which found that £172.6 million was secured for the city as a result of the title. £48 million of this went on a cultural capital investment fund to improve or bring back into use historic assets such as the Belgrave Theatre and St Mary's Guildhall. All of these examples are the sort of wide-ranging legacies that made the City Council bid for the City of UK Culture title in the first place, and why, as a principal partner of the Trust, we've taken steps to help and support where we can because of that bigger picture. Coventry's Cardinal Newman School received a gift from royalty last Friday as they were given a tree by the Queen's Green Canopy in recognition of their work on environmental projects. Coventry Lord Mayor Councillor Kevin Mayton and Coventry Park Rangers presented the white bean tree and helped pupils plant it on their grounds as a legacy for future generations. The Queen's Green Canopy is a nationwide scheme created to mark the late Queen Elizabeth II's Platinum Jubilee and it has been extended by King Charles III. Cardinal Newman has been involved in tree planting projects in nearby Towndon Park to help Coventry achieve a pledge to plant 360,000 trees, one for every Coventrian, over the next 10 years. The school has also been dedicated to helping the rangers on other projects in the area for many years. The council is planting a mix of native species to create new woodland across Coventry and has so far planted over 40,000 trees. Councillor Mayton said, it's an honour to be able to gift this tree to students of Cardinal Newman for all of their hard work they have shown in helping our environment. The tree is a fitting gift and reminder of the efforts they have made and continue to put into reducing the impact on the environment that we all make. School teacher and environmental project lead at Cardinal Newman, Rhys Davis, added, it is an honour to receive this gift in recognition of the environmental work pupils have done, inside and outside of school, over the last few years. The pupils at Cardinal Newman take great pride in their Peace Prayer Garden, 
school grounds and the peace orchard we have helped to develop in Camden Park. The pupils enjoy using them and taking their learning outside the classroom. Coventry City Council's budget for the year ahead contains no planned cuts to services but a proposed council tax rise of just under 3% and a 2% adult social care precept. The proposed budget for April to next March will go before councillors for approval later this month. The bill's increase is, is expected to be just over 5% when police and fire services raises are added, around £1.65 a week for an average Coventry household. The Bandy Council Tax Bill rises from £1,820 to around £1,910, with those in bands A and B seeing an annual rise of around £70. The council said the increase was being proposed to address the rising costs of care in the city. The council said at the start of the financial year, the, the authority began with a £17 million budget gap and faced inflationary pressures of £22 million over the past year due to the rising costs in social care, pay awards and energy prices, amongst other factors. Councillor Richard Brown, Cabinet Member for Strategic Finance and Resources, said, We don't want to raise council tax, but we have to in order to pick up the shortfall that the government fails to provide to the city, forcing local people to pick up the tab for national failings. The council is working really hard to manage its finances and be self-sustainable as possible, with savings and additional income in areas such as property rationalisation and commercial income included in a wide savings of £17 million next year. We have received some money from the government in sorry some money in the government's financial settlement to help with inflation costs, but this does nothing to help meet the additional challenges we face, including the cost of living crisis. Despite this, we have managed to set out a balanced budget and continue to protect frontline services. Self-driving cars could be on the streets of Coventry City Centre in as little as 18 months. The vehicles will be used as part of a trial which will see the technology tested in the City Centre and at the nearby NEC. Building on Coventry's history as the UK's motor city, the scheme heralds a new era of travel. To begin with, a driver will be present in the vehicles, but eventually they will be unmanned and monitored completely remotely. Coventry University is playing a key role in the scheme, which aims to show that this technology can be put to commercial use. It plans to use the vehicles to operate an internal mail service across the university's city centre locations with purpose-built self-driving light vans. They'll be operated from a remote control room using a 5G-based remote monitoring and teleoperational service. Kevin Vincent, Director of Coventry University's Centre for Connected and Autonomous Automotive Research, said, We were chosen to take part in this project because it is recognised that we have expertise in studying human factors and in cyber security in the field of self-driving vehicles. Our work on this is all about demonstrating that technology will work in real-world settings and providing that evidence for those who want to further self-driving technology. Coventry was the site of some of the UK's early self-driving trials and we have a history of running safe road trials. The project is led by Connie Duttall and Coventry University 
and is one of a number of collaborating organisations involved, including Coventry City Council. Coventry City Council has secured £140,000 of government funding for new Changing Places toilets for disabled residents in Coventry. The cash will be used to install two new toilets to improve accessibility for severely disabled residents. Changing places are toilet facilities which include specialist equipment such as a hoist and adult-sized changing benches to provide adequate space for up to two carers to support people with multiple disabilities. They will ensure that people with severe disabilities and their carers or families won't have to worry about finding suitable facilities while on a day out, travelling or shopping. Coventry City Council is one of 64 local authorities to secure funding for the second time from the Department of Leveling Up Housing and Communities. The modular toilets will be built at War Memorial Park and Coombe Abbey Park by March 2024. The first round of funding will see facilities installed at the Albany Theatre and Shop Mobility at Tesco Arena. Around 120 new changing facilities will be erected across the UK in Phase 1 of the Changing Places scheme. Councillor Christine Thomas, Chair of the Disability Action Partnership and Transport Charter Lead, said the country was intent on improving the quality of life for members of the disabled community. We are committed as a council to ensure that the quality of life for these members of our community improves, she said. Part of this commitment is working to break down and remove existing barriers and obstacles that many people with disabilities continue to face, such as accessing toilet facilities when out in public places. A few more additional toilet facilities may seem like a small change, but it can make all the difference in terms of having an enriching impact on the life of a disabled person, both from an accessibility point of view and in terms of their mental well-being. Outlook News. Right, thank you very much to Elaine for helping me with the news reader. Um, there weren't too many difficult words, but there were one or two bits I tripped over. But we got there in the end. Um, right, now the only announcement I've got is lighting up and down. It's definitely getting lighter. It's about 7 o'clock in the morning now. The light, the sun comes up and it gets bright. And then it's about half past 5 at night. So it's definitely the days are getting a bit longer, which is nice, especially when we get a sunny day. We've had a few of those. So now we go to find what's going on in the resource centre with you. Thank you very much. I mean, to be honest, there's always a lot going on here, but uh, there's not necessarily a lot that I can tell you about just oh. at the moment. Um, tell us the things that the listeners won't know about, if you like. Well, just won't, yeah. Yeah. Pour your heart out just, to us. Just yeah. pour it out. Uh, what I will say is that we are honing in, I've hinted at this before, honing in um, on a grant from the City Council, um, which is quite a significant one, uh, fairly big money, and, um, and so that will help us uh, really develop things in the future. So so I'm hoping that in, next week I will be able to talk in some detail about that. Um, but we have to have a meeting on Monday about it because it's been going on a while, this. But anyway, we're, 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 we're nearly over the home stretch, we think. Um, I do not have really anything particularly other to say than I did last week. So I shall reiterate this. Um, the Ring and Ride service, the uh, you know, Coventry on-demand bus service, uh, is... Uh, 
for some people have reported to me that the uh, that they do have not had good experiences with it uh, and um, I think it would be a good idea for me to write to Transport West Midlands and tell them uh, in no uncertain terms and about the experiences that uh, visually impaired people have with using this new bus service uh, and a lot of our people also have other um, other disabilities as well that they have to uh, contend with so uh, and it's not really reaching the parts that uh, Ring and Ride used to reach let's put it that way so if you've had um, experiences and I'll take good as well as bad but I've only ever heard bad to be perfectly honest um, I would really like to know about them so just uh, give us a call sometime and I'll I'll, I'll drop things down Um, and then um, uh, we'll um, well, I'll, I'll put things together and write to Transport West Midlands to tell them to mend their ways. Um, now, I mentioned last week that uh, come the coronation, uh, which is in early May, uh, so it's the fifth, uh, the sixth of May is the coronation day itself. Uh, on the Friday, which is the day before, we're going to do afternoon tea here Ooh. for everybody. Uh, anybody who uh, fancies coming along, if you do fancy coming along, that's absolutely wonderful. We'd love to see you, but please let Heather know. And you need she's got a list. She's got a list. Heather, Heather has a list. She's got lots of lists. Uh, so you need to call 024 7671 uh, and let her know if you would like to come and um, if you would need to use the bus. I don't think, um, certainly Braille is not going to be running that day, and I need to check with yoga, uh, but um, probably there'll be no other classes running that day, so we'll just have a mm. we'll just have a coronation celebration day. It doesn't happen very often. No, and none of us remember the previous one, do we? Uh, I certainly don't. I'm not <laughs> going to comment on anybody else sitting in this room. <laughs> <laughs> All right, you. If, if the crown fits where If the crown fits where <laughs> <laughs> yes, that, sh- that should be the that should be the slogan of the coronation, shouldn't it? Yes. You can see it on the a slap bang on the side of the golden coach, couldn't you? <laughs> um, so there's that. Then uh, we've got now. I mean, Monday, uh, Monday, May is full of bank holidays, absolutely mm, yes. rammed mm. full of them. Mm. In fact, uh, there are uh, four Mondays in May this year, and uh, one of them isn't a bank holiday. Uh, so. Uh, so Monday Club and Creative Writing, you're <laughs> going to have a bit of a break, really, <laughs> it has to be said. Um, so anyway, that's that's how it is. That's how the cookie crumbles. It, often May is a short month mm. for us anyway, but, but there we are. So uh, we're going to have, uh, so on the first Monday of May, of course, that's May Day Bank Holiday, mm. and we are going to have the Elston Festival. Uh, taking place all up and down Earlston Street and all up and down the Resource Centre car park as well. Oh. So we're going to have the uh, charity shop going large in the car park and there's going to be a stall full of plants from our wonderful allotment group. Um, and then there may well be other stalls that we will be selling to people who didn't manage to get uh, a stall on the main street. So there should be quite a lot going on here. There will not be any refreshments that day um, uh, supplied by us. Profitable though it may be, it's also a bit of a pain in the backside Mm. uh, to do um, because a lot of people tend to want it. So uh, we won't be doing refreshments that day. And that 
I think good people is it. That really is it. I've got yeah. nothing else that I need or can say just at the moment. April the 1st. April the 1st. Oh, yes. Oh, gosh, you've got good memory. Yes, that's before May, isn't it? Um, <laughs> April. Yes. April Fool's Day. April yes. Fool's Day. So, yes, we're going to have the, we, the... That's right. We're going to have the charity shop going large on, on, on the 1st of April as well. So there'll be lots of really good bargains. I know, actually, there's a lot of really good stuff that uh, June has got together. Uh, and dug out of the shed stuff that has not been out on the shop floor before that is terrifically good quality and some nice little collectibles as well so uh, if you like collecting those uh, any sorts of things from crockery to uh, to books to jewelry to you know to mm. actually pretty good clothes in uh, in mm. very good nick um, then it's definitely worth coming along and telling other people about it as well because uh, it, it, the shop raises good both the shops raise excellent money for us um, right, I think that was it. There's nothing else in April that I need to tell you about. I've told you about the 28th of March, which is the creative writing group being down at the Criterion Theatre. Um, so, but people have to make their own way there. But okay. that's it. Okay. Well, this is a fair bit to talk about, because if you said there wasn't anything... Well, I mean, it's all what I said last week, really. There's nothing new. No, some people might not have listened. Yeah, they might you. not have listened. Oh, oh, how could they not? Shame on them. Yes. Thank you, Hugh, for what you have told us this week. Oh, I've got a difficult word for you. Oh, go on then. Phloxinox in the Hilophilipication. Spell it. (laughs) F-L-A-U-C-C-I-N-A-U-C-C-I-F-I-L-I-P-I-C-A-T-I-O-N. You're just showing off, aren't you? Phloxinox in the Hilophilipication means the action of estimating something as worthless, but there we are. What about supercalifragilisticexpialidocious? That's very good. I also like anti-disestablishmentarianism. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) I think on that note we should leave it there. This is getting very silly. Thanks again, Hugh. And now we have got Sarah, as usual, with this week's Sport. Outlook Sport. Hello there and welcome to Sport. It's Sarah and as usual now I'm recording from home but I need to give a warning. I've got a very active kitten who is doing mad things in particular setting my wind chimes off. So heaven alone knows what extra noises you'll hear on this. But anyway I'll carry on with the real stuff. The sport. Now on Friday evening Coventry Rugby Club travelled to London Scottish to play the last round in the Championship Cup. Now they came away with a 31 points to 47 victory but sadly on the last minute of their match on Saturday Doncaster Knights had the audacity to draw with Bedford Blues which meant it was Doncaster who went through to the semi-finals of the Cup rather than Coventry. But anyway, well done, Cov. Now, big drum roll. Well, no, actually, I'll backspace a bit. Because I record on a Monday, last Tuesday, that's a week ago, Coventry City played Millwall. Yes. You know, that team where all police leave is cancelled for. But most importantly, they won 1-0. And double important for Coventry, the goal was scored by that man who spells his name with a G. 
Victor Jokeres finally broke his goal drought. Whew. And then again on Saturday, this time. Now, don't get excited, folks, when I say Coventry travelled to New York. Rotherham United play at the New York Stadium. Mm-hmm. I don't know why. And as the radio commentator said, I wonder if New York has a stadium called Rotherham. I doubt it somehow. But anyway, most importantly, Coventry came away with a 2-0 victory. First goal scored by our Jamie Allen and the second goal scored by, you've guessed it, that man who spells his name with a G, Victor Jokeres. We have definitely broken the goal drought. Whew. Now, Steve Grizovic said that we were quite lucky and didn't really deserve to win, but apparently Rotherham United were so dreadful, he did then say, but let's be honest, we couldn't have done anything but. But anyway, now Coventry City are four points off the playoffs. Although statistically we are in 11th place. The league is so tight. It really is one of these situations where, a few, apart from the top three teams who are racing away, it really is lower down a league that any team who goes on a good run can go upwards or a bad run can drop like a stone. Now, talking about fighting sort of relegation, Lermington travelled, no they didn't, they entertained Darlington and they won. After 15 matches without a win, Lemington won Two goals to one. So well done, ye breaks. Sadly, in the, in another league, but also fighting relegation, Stratford Town, they lost away to Rush, Rushmore Olympic. But they did lose four goals to three. And I know it was three goals all at half-time. So come on, Stratford, come on, ye beds. Now, at the other end of their division, Nuneaton are doing rather well. In fact, they're third at the moment. And they did travel to Hitchin and came away with a one-all draw. But that's not too bad, Nuneaton. Now, in the lower leagues, down with the dead men, almost, Coventry Sphinx won 5-0. And Rugby Town won by three goals against Banbury. So quite a local derby there. Meanwhile, Racing Club Warwick drew and Coventry United also drew. Now, as an aside, Coventry United were playing my favourite named team. You know, God Manchester. So I asked my speaky friend, I won't say its name, otherwise all your smart speakers will suddenly chip up. Anyway, A-L-E-X-A, -E where God Manchester is. And she said, God Manchester is a town in the northwest of England, 56 miles north of London. 
Yes, and it's in the north of England. It's still 40 miles south of us. So I asked her where we were. We are also in the northwest of England. Hey ho. Now on Sunday, and I'm sure you've heard about this on the local radio, comes because the women's football, both the Super League and the Championship, were having a week off. It's made room for the Lionesses to play in their, in their tournament. And their tournament was at no less an arena than the Coventry Building Society Arena. It was the Arnold Clark tournament. And England took on Italy at the CBS and came away 2-1 winners. Now that is the manager's, something like her 27th consecutive victory with the England team. She's phenomenal. When you think that England were a good side before Serena came, but they were always kind of knocking on the door and never really there. Anyway, the other teams in the Arnold Clark tournament are Belgium and Korea. I assume South Korea. Um, I don't know the ranking of those two, but... They're, they're saying it will probably be an England-Belgium final. But that is midweek, I believe. Now, just as an aside, and I can't give you the statistic, but it was a record ever crowd at CBS Arena. I have heard 35,000, 32,000, 31, whatever. But it, it beat the current, the previous record which was Wasps, whoever they are, um, against against Leicester Tigers by 100. And it beat the game when Coventry City played Chelsea by 2,000. Hmm. Who says women's football's got no fan base? Not me. Now, staying local, congratulations to Chelsea Giles who won gold in the Belgian Grand Prix, which is part of the Judo World Championship Series. Well done, Chelsea. Now, getting a bit more national, the boys in pyjamas have been at it again. Oh, and the girls. Yeah, the boys and girls in pyjamas. Although, this time I have to say, I rather want a pair of the girls' pyjamas. The women's cricket team are playing in some lovely bright red, really smart cricket clothes. And they've got the blue three lions on their shirts. And they're in a heck of a winning way at the moment. They've qualified for the semi-finals of the women's T20 World Cup with an 11-run victory over India. And this was cemented when, oh, I love this. Sorry. <clears throat> Wait for it. Australia lost to Pakistan. Yes! Sorry, folks. It's an England-Australia thing. We sort of get a little bit airified, shall we say, over sport. However... 
the men's team have upgraded their pyjamas for some rather smart but traditional white flannels. But they are playing so well all of a sudden. Out in New Zealand, playing the traditional kind of test matches, they are winning. In fact, it led the BBC website to comment to the effect, to, to the effect of when they were desperate for a victory, they couldn't get one. And now they just can't stop scoring. So well done to Ben Stokes and his men. You're doing us proud. Now the golf season is beginning to ramp up because we are getting close to the, to the US Masters, which I believe is the first of the four um, majors, as they're called. And... Tiger Woods has been trying to make yet another comeback. Well, it's only his second comeback. But you may remember he nearly lost his leg in a car accident two years ago. Anyway, he did well in the first round, faded a bit in the second, but I'm afraid really is fading now. I think the thing is that golf is quite a tiring sport, although you don't think about it. Because of the distance you're having to walk, you need to be quite fit and it stands to sense that for somebody who has had a really bad leg for so long, his fitness level is not going to be that of the other players. But well done, Tiger. Keep going, keep at it. And now my final bit. And finally, you may have heard about the issue with Wasps Rugby Club who flew to Coventry, alighted in our then Rico Arena, took it over basically, and then went bust. They'd been shut down and relegated from the Premiership, but they have permission. In other words, they've shown that they have the finances and the stability to play in the championship. Well, guess who else is in the championship? Cov. Oh, I can't wait for Wasps to come and be absolutely smattered by the true Coventry Blues at the Butts Park. Bring it on, guys. And that was your sport. Or oh, can I just say a huge thanks to Dave for his very kind comments about what Sheila thought of my sport. It's nice to know that somebody likes it. OK, bye. Thanks very much to Sarah. And now it's your part of our programme for this week. It's Postbag with Dave. This is Postbag. Hello there, it's your postbag again. It's a sad postbag, but I hope it will be an inspirational one. First of all, here's a report from Julia, entitled All Shook Up. I wanted to write about the earthquake in Turkey and Syria, but my friend John said everybody already knows about it. It was very sad though, lots of people are dead or very cold, and their houses have all fallen down. 
but they did pull a little girl out of the rubble yesterday, so it's not all bad news. I remember that there was an earthquake in Birmingham once, a long time ago. Birmingham did not fall down, or perhaps it did. I haven't been there since. What is really bad news is that Sheila Monks sadly passed away last week. I love Sheila. She was always very kind to me. I remember that she used to read Bible verses or prayers out at the end of some of the talking newspapers. I feel so sorry for her husband, David, and for her children. They will all miss her terribly. I think that all of us at the Monday Club should give him a big group hug to David next time we see him, Julia. Thank you so much for your kind thoughts, Julia, and for reminding me of the piece that she recorded at the end of Outlook with her lovely voice. Here's a piece called Love. is such a precious thing. It's fragile and it's rare. It damages so easily, so handle it with care. It's free to those who seek it. There's enough for all to share. The more that love is given out, the more there is to spare. Majid Hussain, whom I used to know and sometimes help at Exor Grange School, who gave me my first Braille lesson teaching me the number sign, sent me a very touching email to davidmonks at hotmail.com. Dear David, I am so, so sorry to hear about the passing of your soulmate, your other half the other part of you, the part that made you complete, Sheila. I would like to give my condolences to you and your family. I can't imagine what soul-destroying pain you must be going through. She was such a lovely, kind lady. Have heart. Sheila is alive in your memory, and I'm sure she will be smiling down on you, David. She was taken far too soon. I wish you and your family peace. You and your family will, will be in my prayers. I'm here for you. Anytime you want to talk, please email. I have an ear open for you anytime. Majid, thank you so much, Majid. Majid, it's so nice to hear from you. And you seem to know the right things to say. You're, you're really kind. And Graham Well reminds me of something else Sheila used to do to help others. I'm sorry to hear the death of Sheila Monks. I really am sorry to hear that. And um, at the risk of embarrassing David, uh, though I hope to have spoken to him before he hears this, but uh, of course I knew Sheila Monks. I'd met her a few times over the years. I think I first spoke to her, first met her, ooh, a good 40 years at least. Uh, when she was volunteering for the reader service and uh, the Coventry branch of the Federation needed a reader at their meeting we were meeting in the uh, downstairs in the uh, cathedral at the time and Sheila was sent along to, to read to us we don't need readers these days because everything's done on the internet all our things have changed 
Um, well, I've met her several times over the years. I think last time it would have been at uh, David and Sheila's uh, wedding anniversary celebrations and spoken to her many times over the phone. And I know she was really trying towards the end. She was really trying hard and uh, with David's help. And uh, I hope to have spoken to David before he hears this. Uh, but my sympathy does go out to David and his family. Well, thank you so much, Graham. You, you are a, a real friend. Thank you. Uh, Sheila pointed out to me, as an example, how much she admired your dress sense with your colour co coordination. You always nicely turned out. And it was great that you came to our golden wedding party in the day centre with visibly sound entertaining. Richard Bignall thought the tribute to Sheila by Dan Samble on BBC CWR on Friday the 10th of February was brilliant and very moving. You can listen to it on BBC Sounds from exactly two and a half hours into the show. Or, if you send me your email address, I can send you the tribute. That's davidmonksahotmail.com. Thank you for your condolence cards, including a handmade one from Tina. I phoned up listener Gail Taylor the other night, hoping to hear her cheery voice. Her personal assistant, Yvonne, answered the phone to tell me that Gail had died the day before. I was so upset. Sheila and I loved her. We got to know her when I bought Sheila her book, My World, after seeing it reviewed in the magazine. My World tells how she was born with cerebral palsy, blind just after birth. She was locked within herself, unable to communicate with the outside world until the age of nine. Written off by the social services, who described her as a cabbage, her parents Pam and Ken never gave up on her. She went on to speak six languages, became a radio ham, joining blind and disabled people over the airwaves, and being an inspiration to countless people with a positive attitude to life. Sheila, being disabled herself, wrote to her saying, how much the book had inspired her. Gail then phoned us up, and I invited her to listen to Outlook, which she really enjoyed listening to and contributed to in postbag. Being absolutely brilliant, answering the quizzes set by the late Mike Haig. Her knowledge of music was incredible, and she had many showbiz friends, such as Sir Harry Seacombe, who wrote and recorded the foreword of her book. Sheila and I went to see Gail in Guildford about three times, and reported on the visit for Outlook. Here Gail tells you of her philosophy in life. These are my thoughts for today. I think it is very important for people to have their self-respect, it is also very important to give love and consideration to others because without giving you will not receive. I think that every person can make a contribution to the life of others and I'm sure that you will reap a, re a re reward well in excess of what you give. As the American film star 
Don Johnson, who made a speech at the Disabled Olympic, said, Every person taking part in this Olympics is a winner here today. Mind you, it's very easy for me to say this, as I live in a comfortable lifestyle, but I must say that we have to make the best of what life has given to us. As I said in a tape which I made, for Irish school children, their achievements is passing exams and working hard at school, while disabled people might pick up a cup and take it to their mouths. That achievement would be to them like climbing Mount Everest. But we all have to work hard to make the most of whatever life may bring and to be as independent as we possibly can. For my part, I have to do a lot of exercises so as to maintain the use of my hands and arms in order to keep my body in reasonable shape. But I am so lucky as I have so many friends and helpers. And in the words of Louis Armstrong, and I think to myself, what a wonderful world. Thank you for your messages this week. Sheila helped keep the Outlook on Life spot going. And I am asking you to help keep Postbag going. So leave us a message on 024-76-717-522 and press 5 for Coventry Talking Newspaper. You can phone me if you like on 024-7659-8484. I do love hearing from listeners. And you can contact us in any other way you, you feel by uh, letter, for instance, if you want, either written by you or somebody else on your behalf. So, and at this time, it would be a comfort to hear hearing from listeners. Thank you very much and bye for now. This is Outlook. You can contact Postbag. Our website is www.talkingnewspaper.org.uk. Our email address is postbag at talkingnewspaper.org.uk. Join in the discussion on Postbag. Thank you very much to Dave and all the contributors. It's always lovely to hear from you, so do keep sending things in. Now, Margaret's going to be telling us about some interesting buildings in Coventry, and this week she has gone somewhere I've never been, the Canal Warehouse. In 1768, a contract was drawn up by Coventry Canal Company to dig a canal between Coventry and Fradley. James Brindley was appointed its engineer. On the 10th of August 1769, the first boatloads of coal came into Coventry from the bed of coal fields, cheered into the basin by thousands. The buildings around the basin in Bishop Street were constructed in 1788 by Coventry Canal Company. These consisted of coal bunkers, warehouses, a weighbridge and canal house, the centre of administration now demolished. The large warehouse on the city centre's side was rebuilt in 1914 and bore the words Grand Union Warehouse. 
This title dated from 1930 when the Grand Union Canal Carrium Company acquired the buildings. It was restored in 1995 by Coventry City Council who developed artist studios, offices and craft shops. The initial ambition was to hold regular events. Uh, at the moment of the book being published, there was a popular bar and music venue in the coal bunkers called The Tin. Hmm, well, another place I must get round to visiting one of these days. My list is getting longer, I'm afraid. Um, now, you might have heard the part um, about Zoom radio that Sue did last week. So this is part two, and it's all about BBC presenters going on to this new radio station. From the start, presenters had to broadcast from their homes because of the pandemic. This was not without its problems, says Judy, formerly of Pebble Mill fame, who joined Boom in August last year. When I was at Radio 2, I never pushed my own buttons. I was never trusted, she laughs. Having created an office at her Exeter home with screens and a microphone, she admits struggling to master the technology for her twice-weekly shows. In my first week, I was on the phone to David Lloyd five times in one hour, she smiles. To be fair, it was the anomalies of the system. But I am one of those awful people who will press any button when I don't know what I'm doing. Listeners are thrilled to hear her back on national radio after a lengthy absence. Judy was axed from her mid-morning slot on BBC Radio Devon in 2015, after 15 years, and had worked for the corporation since 1991. I've had an enormous response on emails from people saying, I wondered what had happened to you when you left Radio 2 or Pebble Mill. I used to listen to you all the time, she says. Does she feel Auntie made the wrong decision? especially given the outpouring of love surrounding her comeback. Yes, they did, because they lost a lot of listeners, she says. That's not up for debate. I remember the day I announced it. The secretary, who was taking calls in Plymouth, was tearing her hair out, saying, I need help with these phones. Our fax machine almost blew up. It overheated. Boone's bosses are warm and friendly, she says, and there is no pressure. It's nice to be with a station where people want to have fun, she says, where the boss is the boss. He doesn't have to go and knock on another door, and there's not another layer of management who are going to come down and make changes. The level of expertise across the entire organisation ensures, the occasional home studio glitch aside, programmes run smoothly and effortlessly. More than half of listeners tune in via smartphones, computers and smart speakers. Phil Riley is not surprised by the shift from digital radios. Even with a DAB radio, you've still got to scroll past all the flipping BBC stations first, whereas you can just ask Alexa to play boom radio. To reach its target of one million listeners next year, the station is ploughing profits back into a marketing drive. A second station, Boom Light, 
has launched for nonagenarians, playing music from the 1950s. Such swift success is impressive for a startup, operating with a fraction of the budget available to larger brands. Despite his decades of experience, David Hamilton never imagined he'd still be on the radio in his 80s. I work in a very insecure business where you can be dumped at the drop of a hat, he says. Back in the 1960s, he carried one of the first TV interviews with the Beatles. The following year, in 1964, he introduced the Rolling Stones on stage at Manchester's Palace Theatre. But he paid the price for parking his red MGB sports car around the back. Somebody thought it was Mick Jagger's car and scratched a love note on it, he sighs. So for a week I was driving around with I love you Mick on the bonnet. He was looking forward to sharing many similar showbiz stories when he teamed up with his broadcasting hero, Pete Murray, 97. Pete talked about his time as a pirate DJ on Radio Luxembourg and his memories of interviewing American jazz legend Nat King Cole and showbiz star and acting royalty respectively Harry Seacombe and Tony Curtis. All in all, Boom's presenters are loving their comeback. One was in tears about returning to live radio. Another said they hadn't had as much fun since their time on pirate radio. There's something a little heretical about what we're doing. We're a group of friends with a dream, broadcasting from our own back bedrooms, says David Lloyd. Many listeners have said we remind them of the pirates because when they were young there was nothing else on the radio for them. The BBC was a staid broadcaster. Now there's a record station that plays their music so they have that same feeling of belonging they felt as a teenager. Thank you to Sue for that. Um, now, we have got something that looks or sounds quite interesting. It's a piece that's taken from the Mail on Sunday, and it was written by a lady called Maddie Fletcher, and it's read by Elaine. It's all about the lost art of diamond cutting. She doesn't want to give her diamond away. She spent a long time with this stone. It took her days to grind down its edges and polish its surface. Now it is in a small box on her desk, lit by a lamp. It is orangey-pink, jagged and beautiful. It's also enormous, 22 carats. Ilana sighs as she looks at it. My dad always said, don't fall in love with your diamonds. Ilana, at 44, is one of only eight diamond cutters left in Britain. She is also the country's only female to practice the profession, but she's not so bothered by that. It's a big enough thing to be one of the last eight. Twenty years ago, when Ilana worked in London's Hatton Garden, there were lots of experts in operation. But now, Heritage Crafts, a British charity backed by King Charles, has added diamond cutting to its red list of endangered trades. Many listed, such as flute-making, watch-making and fabric-pleating, involve skills that have been threatened by modern machinery. Diamond-cutting is still done by hand, 
but most of the workers are now based in India and China. They cut the stones for less money and British artisans can't compete. Ilana started working with diamonds when she was 21. She had dropped out of her mechanical engineering degree at the University of Plymouth and needed a job. Her dad Gideon was a diamond cutter. Ilana moved into his flat in Hatton Garden and trained. Cutters buy stones from rough diamond sellers, polish them, then sell them on to jewellers. Most of the world's rough diamonds come from Russia, Botswana and Canada. And the stones can sell for huge sums. Last December alone, the diamond corporation De Beers sold $410 million worth. But working out which rough diamonds will fetch a lot of money and which won't is complicated. There's no machinery or software involved, so buyers have to judge a stone with their eyes alone. Although Ilana's father was the greatest craft person, he was a terrible business person. So in her twenties, she stopped cutting and started buying, travelling around the world, assessing uncut gems and brokering deals for her dad. Then in 2010, Gideon had a stroke and was no longer able to work. So alongside diamond buying, Ilana returned to cutting. She's been doing both ever since. She really likes diamonds. We meet in Birmingham at her workshop, a small space in part of the city's jewellery quarter. There is a framed print of a diamond on the wall and a coat hook with diamond-shaped pegs on the door. Frequently, as we talk, Ilana refers to the stones as my diamonds, as though they were alive. Cutting and polishing is a fiddly process. The diamond is clamped into a tool called a dop, which is fixed to a holding tool called a tang. The stone is then manually ground and shaped against a flat wheel that spins, a bit like a pottery wheel. This stage is tricky because it rotates so quickly that the stones can ping off at 3,000 rotations per minute. There are lots of small holes in the windows in Ilana's studio where some diamonds have tried to escape. The machinery also gets so hot it glows red and I notice her fingers are dotted with burn marks. Because diamonds are so hard, they can only be filed down using other diamonds. So the wheel is coated with diamond paste. To make hers, Ilana mixes diamond dust with olive oil. The whole cutting operation can take hours, days possibly, depending on how complicated or how big the diamond is. It all sounds highly demanding and stressful. Diamond is an expensive material, and cutting it is irreversible. Should you take too much off, there's no going back. But Ilana shrugs casually. It's very hard to mess things up, she explains, to make a mistake that isn't put rightable. The funny thing, she goes on, is that even though diamond cutting is a male-dominated industry, something this intricate is well-suited to women. We have that attention to detail. In fact, Ilana's plan is to offer apprenticeships 
that will create a new generation of experts. She's open to hiring anyone, but is looking particularly at taking on women. You also can't be vain. Ilana's father died two years ago, but when I ask if it's important for her to carry on his legacy, she quickly answers no. My dad cut hundreds of thousands of diamonds that are in people's rings, but because cutters sell their finished diamonds to jewellers, who then fit them and sell them to customers, the stones aren't given a hallmark. No one will ever know that they're walking around with one of my dad's. You have to be egoless in this business. Once your creation is sold, no one knows about you. I ask if that bothers her. Not at all. Her father felt the same. Making something beautiful is, in itself, really satisfying, she says. You take pleasure in having enhanced and created this thing out of a rock. Besides, she adds, selling gems is exciting. I love my diamonds. I'm just happy for them to have a good home. So for Ilana Belsky, it's definitely a case of diamonds are a girl's best friend. Now, I'm not lucky enough to have many diamonds, just a tiny one in my engagement ring, but I'm sure people that have got beautiful big rings must be very interested in that. Um, and now Dave's back with us again. He always does a lot for the programme, doesn't he? This is part two again of the piece he started last week about a lady called Jessica, who was a shepherdess. What was so fantastic, David, about my farm was that I had all these animals sort of wandering around free range. Yes. And somehow I managed to impart the the idea that we needed to all live harmoniously together. Oh, yes. And you had all these species who really were at various potential layers of the food chain, and there was never a problem. No, right, um, So fantastic. I used to try and teach them three rules on the farm. Yeah. Love is unconditional. Yes. Respect is mutual, and we don't eat family members. Okay, so, so this, so, so, so mint sauce is, is a uh, dirty word on your farm. Yes. You know, somehow we managed it, and it it really worked. So we had guinea fowl, turkey, um, wandering around, uh, the chickens, and we had a huge 300-kilo pig called Cassandra, and everybody got on. Yes, right. I understand you had a turkey that was blind in one eye. He did. He grew a cataract because I rescued him from the Christmas oven. Yes. And um, ten years later, he was still going strong. Now, it was unknown how long a turkey would normally live. Uh, Asked the vet, and the vet said, look, we don't know. It's probably about ten years, you know, but but normally they just are raised for Christmas dinner, and that's the end of it. So when he grew this cataract, I realized it was just a function of her old age. Yes. And the vet said we can do nothing about it. Because if we, first of all, we'd never removed a cataract from a turkey eye, we wouldn't, we wouldn't know what to do. And secondly, if we put him under anesthetic, he'd probably die of shock at his age. Yes. So I realized he was still functioning perfectly with one eye. It meant when I walked up to him, I always approached him from the right, so he knew it was me. Um, and he was absolutely fine. 
Right, I understand you refuse to write bananas. Is that right or did I read it wrong? Overripe bananas is very, very favourite. If you wanted to win your way into Roger's heart, you, you just did some bananas go that overripe in the kitchen and you were done. <laughs> <laughs> Wonderful. How did your interest in, in, in animals start? I understand you, you observed some elephants in South Africa. Absolutely. I've always connected with animals. What was that story? Yeah, absolutely connected with animals right from the very beginning. Yeah. Um, and in fact, sometimes, uh, I, I, I sometimes think I interact better with animals than I do with humans. Yeah, never mind. So, you're you're uh, do, doing fine with me, by the way, and vice versa. <laughs> very good. <laughs> Excellent. Thanks so, a lot. Um, Anyway, what's so, so special about the wool from South Down Sheep? Now, the wool is precious. It is very short fibred. We only get about an inch off um, a fleece, whereas other breeds every year they will grow much longer. Yes. Yeah. And there lies the difference, David. The longer the fleece, obviously the better into knitting yarn because it can be woven and yarned very easily. South yeah. Island wool is not good for that kind of application. But because it's short uh, uh, fibred, it is perfect into bedding. So we card it Quilts. and it goes very, very light and sort of fluffy and spongy. Yes. And the technical term for that is loft. So yeah. South Island wool is known as the loftiest of wools. And that is the secret. You apply the this right kind of wool to the right kind of end product. You marry the two together, and the magic happens. Well, and they they uh, keep they 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 keep you warm in in bed as well. They right, keep you and, warm. And you uh, sell quilts in summer, warm in winter. Yeah, light. Uh, everything that you want for eco-credentials. They're biodegradable, they don't shed microfibers, no dust mite. Um, they're the perfect product. And, you know, clever sheep, they grow this fiber in the first place, which yeah. we as humans cannot replicate in a laboratory without literally costing the earth with, you know, plastic-based microfiber shedding yes. materials that do not biodegrade. And no. the sheep do it every year, just standing in the fields. That's marvellous, it really is. You know, it is. It is. And, and the sad thing is, wood has been kind of forgotten, you know, with the advent of all these kind of high-tech, yes. synthetic fibres coming on really from the 60s through till now. Yeah. Um, natural fibres only represent 4% of the fibre industry globally now, uh, well, yes. the wool, wool does, sorry, and really, sadly, sadly forgotten. What's the advantage in terms of warmth over synthetic uh, material in quilts? Well, what the wool does is it, you know, everybody sweats all the yes. time, that's how yeah. we cool our bodies. Yeah. So in bed, um, you do sweat, the wool will absorb the moisture away from you, yeah. from where it evaporates through the wool and through the duvet, yes. and that leaves you feeling very dry, without a clammy, hot, sweaty feeling, yes. but still cosy. 
Okay. Whereas the synthetics and the feathers will trap the moisture around you. And that's when you wake up feeling overly hot and clammy and you throw the duvet off and think, oh, this is awful. And then basically what happens is the sweat dries on you, you cool off, you then grab the duvet back because you get cold. And the whole cycle then starts again under these synthetics. But in the meantime, your sleep has been disturbed, which means you're not getting sufficient REM sleep for healthy, you know, no, that's right. Okay. So, what do your, your quilts sell for, and, and how, how how would you uh, buy one? Well, the the quilts are priced at um, equivalent to what you would pay for a um, a feather down duvet. Yes. So it's they they obviously more expensive than synthetic. Yes, of course. Um, and you can buy through us. You can phone us up, and what we do with our customers is we celebrate the fact that everybody's unique and everybody's got a different story to tell and needs something slightly different. So we will spend time with our customers and talk through with them what they are needing out of bedding. Mm. For example, you know, do they have any circulation issues? Do they have any medical issues? How warm is their room? How insulated is their house? Um, And then we can advise which tog weight of duvet to go for. Um, And then send it out with a no questions asked uh, refund if it's not right. Uh, Oh, right. Thanks. Uh, Do you you have a a phone number or a name to sort of contact? It's Southdown Quills. We'll be in trouble. It's 01935. Yes. Five. And we, we know we welcome our customers. We we find it so much more efficient to talk to them before they buy That's something. Excellent. Because then we can get to know what they need, and then we can match them up correctly to the right product immediately. Okay, well, right. Uh, thanks, uh, uh, Jessica. It's been absolutely delightful talking to, to you. Thank you very much. Great pleasure, and do take care. Sheila, take care. Yes, take care. All right. Now, I must admit, I've never wanted to become a shepherdess. I quite like sheep in the field, especially this time of year when there's lots of little lambs about. Um, but, no, I don't think that's a job for me, I'm afraid. Now, I know it's always lovely to get those stories that um, uh, Cynthia Townsend wrote. We've got another one this week read by Ali, and it's called You've Lost That Loving Feeling. Jason had been having doubts about his relationship with Becky. On paper, she was everything he liked in the woman. She was funny, smart, great company and pretty. She had the most amazing eyes and a smile that could take your breath away. But Becky wasn't Marie. Marie was the one you would term as the one that got away, who Jason was going out with for a couple of years before she broke his heart and ran off with his best mate the day after their engagement party. The worst thing about it all, Jason's best mate Harry was someone he trusted with his life and never thought he could be so cruel as to run off with his best friend's soon-to-be wife. It had been a few tough years for Jason after he lost Marie. He kept playing things over and over again in his head. When did it start going wrong? Why didn't he see what was happening? Did he miss the signs or was he too wrapped up in his own life and career 
to know what was going on right under his nose. Whatever the reason, it affected Jason, and he never felt so low in his life. He started going out at night, either sitting alone in a bar and drowning his sorrows, or going clubbing and going through the motions of having a good time, so he could save face, when all the time all he really wanted was Marie back. It was during one of his booze-fuelled nights that he met Becky. She was with a party of twelve sitting at one of the tables in the pub, having a great time and celebrating a recent big contract that the company she worked for had won, which meant a secure future. That was truly something to celebrate when you've previously worked on short-term contracts. Jason was about to leave the pub and head home when he accidentally bumped into Becky and trod on her toe as she was heading to the bar to get around in. Oh my God, I'm sorry, he said. I didn't see you. I hope I haven't hurt your foot. Nah, don't worry, mate, said Becky. It's easily done. And besides, I've got another foot, so no harm done. I'll just drop by the body shop in the morning and pick up a new one. Jason laughed for the first time in ages. Thanks for that, he said, feeling relieved that he hadn't done more damage to her dainty foot. Thanks for what, said Becky. For making me laugh. Becky liked the look of Jason. She thought he had the look of a little lost puppy, and she was a sucker for animals, and even though he looked like he'd had a few, he was still polite and concerned for bumping into her. Her experience of fellas who had one over the eight was that they were like bulls in a china shop and didn't care who they knocked over, let alone stop and apologise. I know you don't know me from Adam, said Becky, but I do like the look of you and I think you could do with a strong coffee. Do you fancy going to the all-night cafe across the road? I'd hate it if the next thing you bumped into was a bus. It would take him a while to scrape you off the road. Jason laughed again and said, Sure, that'll be nice. But what about your friends? Oh, that's okay. They want to go on to a nightclub and I'm not too keen. I'd much rather go for coffee. And besides, I couldn't dance as my foot really hurts, she said with a wicked grin on her face. Make me feel bad, why don't you, said Jason. They both got their coats and headed across the road to the Blue Lamp Cafe. It used to be a former police station back in the day, but was converted into an all-night cafe that was mainly used by drivers, taxi drivers and shift workers. It was really nice inside, and there were quaint little wooden booths to sit in with leather seats, which meant you could have a decent conversation without being overheard. After they'd ordered a couple of lattes, Jason and Becky just chatted away like a couple of old pals. They had so much in common and liked the same music and both even admitted to having a Barry Manilow album in their record collection. He was their joint guilty pleasure. Time seemed to fly and a few lattes later Becky said that she really needed to go as she had an early start the next day and even though it was a Saturday she was helping her friend move house but she said she'd love to see Jason again if he wanted to meet up sometime for a drink. He said he'd love to, and they swapped numbers and headed out towards the door. Over the next six months, they saw each other virtually every other day, and Jason actually felt he was coming out of the darkness and into the light. Marie was now a fading memory, and he was happy that he got Becky in his life. There was no edge to Becky. What you saw is what you got, and any fellow would be proud to have her on his arm.
She was genuinely good company, and Jason felt he could be himself around her. Something he now realised he wasn't with Marie, and he always got the feeling he wasn't good enough for her. After a year or so together, they decided to take the plunge and move in. As Becky's flat was bigger and nearer to the city, it seemed logical for them both to live at hers. Jason didn't have much to bring over, as he got rid of a lot of the stuff from the flat after he split up with Marie. Some of it he ruined in one of his rage days, some he gave away to charity shops, and the rest was in storage. The things that he owned before he met Marie, therefore had no association with her. Living with Becky was fun. They always seemed to laugh. They had a similar taste in films and would often curl up on the sofa, watching a good movie of an evening. However, Jason drew the line at watching Dirty Dancing. It was Becky's favourite movie, and she'd have it showing on the loop morning, noon and night if she could. It wasn't really Jason's cup of tea. So whenever Becky wanted to watch it, Jason would take himself off into the study room and listen to music, with Becky shouting, If you really loved me, you'd watch Dirty Dancing with me. Never, said Jason, laughing. It was one of those nights when Becky was having her Swayze fix, when Jason decided to sort out one of the boxes that he bought with him from the flat. He wasn't sure what was in it, as the label just said, miscellaneous. He really wished he hadn't opened it. There was a photo album crammed with photos of him and Marie, plus keepsakes of their numerous holidays together. The more he delved into the box, the more melancholy he became as it dawned on him that he still really missed her. Becky got up for a comfort break, and then walked into the room where Jason was, to see him poring over the album, and when she realised what it was, she sensitively said, Oh, I'm sorry, sweetheart, I should have knocked. I didn't realise you were sorting stuff. Come back into me when you're finished. Jason felt guilty. It was obvious that Becky had seen what he was looking at, and he felt bad that he'd been wallowing in trips down memory lane with the woman who'd ripped his heart out and left him emotionally dead. It wasn't as if Jason had even heard from Marie after she left. I guess he felt that he had unfinished business and wanted to see her again just to make sense of what had happened and what he'd done to be treated so callously. No matter... He didn't really need to know. Yes, Becky wasn't Marie, but that was a good thing. He didn't feel like he had to prove himself to anyone other than himself, and with Becky, for that feeling alone, he was grateful and happy. He picked up the box and took it into the room where Becky was. I know you saw what I was looking at, said Jason, but there's nothing sinister in it. I literally didn't know what was in the box until I opened it and it brought back a lot of memories. And yes, I'll admit there were some good memories, but the heartache's no longer there. I know, said Becky, but those are your memories, and I'd never want you to think you couldn't think about Marie. After all, she was a big part of your life. I know you love me, and that we're happy, and you're entitled to your memory box. I have one, so why shouldn't you? The fact that my memory box contains stuff that used to belong to all my dead cats from the age of ten is neither here nor there, 
but I still go to the box and sniff Freddy the cat's blanket from time to time. And once again, Becky had made Jason laugh at a time he was feeling low. And he realised he didn't need that memory box. He wanted to make new memories with Becky, not dwell on the old ones. So he took the box outside, put it in the bin and came back indoors. OK, he said. Let's start making new memories. You put on dirty dancing and I'll sort out the popcorn. It must be love if he was prepared to watch that. But don't expect me to attempt to lift you up in the air. And you know what? After all Jason's protesting, he actually enjoyed the film and never left the room again when it was on. So the final piece on this week's programme is by Margaret again, and she's going to read us a poem written by a lady called Fleur Adcock, and it's called The Post Office. The queues right out through the glass doors to the street, Thursday, pension day. They built this post office too small. Of course, the previous one was smaller, a tiny prefab next to the betting shop, says the man who's just arrived. And the present one at which we're queuing was cherry trees in front of a church. The church was where the supermarket is. My wife and I got married in that church, the man says. We hold hands sometimes when we're standing waiting at the checkout, have a little moment together. He laughs. The queue shuffles forward a step. Three members of it silently vow never to grow old in this suburb. One vows never to grow old at all. I first met her over there, the man says, on that corner where the bank is now. The other corner was Williams Brothers. Remember Williams Brothers? They gave you tokens, tin money, like for your dividend. The woman in front of him remembers. She nods and swivels her loose lower denture, remembering Williams Brothers' metal tokens and the marble slab on the cheese counter and the carved mahogany booth where you went to pay. The boy in front of her is chewing gum. His jaws rotate with the same motion as hers, to and fro, to and fro. So, as I said, that's just about the end of this week's programme. We will, of course, be back with you next week. But in the meantime, it's goodbye from me, Sheila Allen.